You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And welcome back to your non-groupthink source of news and commentary on the policies that actually matter. This is Daniel Horowitz at Conservative Review on the Westwood One Podcast Network. Um, It is late Thursday, Thursday afternoon, and it feels like a Friday for me. Because, A, I'm going to actually be out tomorrow for an extended uh, weekend with, with family. But, uh, man, it just it's one of those weeks where rather than focusing on one issue, which I like to do. My wife still says I can't multitask well. I'm focusing on so many disparate smaller issues. We got jailbreak percolating. We have a number of crazy court cases where my brain is into that research. It's just a very heavy research week. I have my big article that came out on public charge, the history of immigration and public charge. Um, Very important article there. A lot of it's from my book, but there's other stuff that I uncovered that's new. And you know, whenever I write an article, I always uncover new stuff and I just kind of get sucked into that. And then uh, there's a lot of stuff. Hopefully we'll have time for a lightning round today. Uh, But you know, that's the thing. It's a lot easier to be like 99% of conservative media, conservative movement, and just you know focus only on all the media censorship, the media this, my tongue points here. It doesn't take much to do that, to actually have a direction and policies and break it down for you. I mean that that's what I spend my time on, not to say that there's no importance in what other people are doing, but as we're going to show from today's uh, today's episode – you can't have a movement and a party that doesn't have this, that doesn't have the substance, that doesn't have an agenda that it's working towards and a message aside from I hate the media, which is true, and then somehow win an election. So today I want to break down Tuesday night's special election results. We have an article out, and some of you might have seen my commentary on Steve Day's show, but we'll expand upon it today. And then I want to circle back to some of the news of the day and what's going on and how it ties into the GOP failures and their impending doom in the elections through the prism of the three Ps, policy, personnel, and purpose. That's what I want to get to today. And and again, it's a tall order. Some of them, we might just do a lightning round at the end. Um, Won't have time to delve into this stuff in, in depth. And we'll have to kick some of this to next week, but a lot of lot of important things I want to get to you. Um, Tuesday night's elections. So, you know, first off, I never understood the point of trying to lie to yourself about your position electorally. I understand publicly, you know, you, you never. It, it's kind of like a warfare tactic. You never want to um, show weakness, and sometimes it's a, it's a self fulfilling. A prophecy, and then you know the retreat becomes a rout. But privately, you don't want to lie to yourself and say you're winning when you know you're losing, because the only way to win is to recognize that you're losing and then change course and employ a winning strategy. 
And my argument is that the same people who are ignoring the electoral problems and where they're coming from and why we have those problems are the same people that are continuing the wrong strategy of exclusively focusing on the media, Alex Jones, Mueller. Even if you're right, and often I agree with what they're saying, it's not going to win you this election. It's just not. There's no way it's going to win you election, and I'm going to prove it. Now, as you guys well know, I am more of a policy ideological guy than kind of a horse race political guy. Um, you know, that's just just my my style. So, you know, feel free to disagree and send me your notes if you disagree on some of my election analysis. I'm not as confident in that as I as I'm confident in legal, constitutional, political principles. You know, horse race. I've I've been wrong on, you know election predictions before, but this is not about trying to predict what happens in November. It's about assessing what's happening right now and what we could do to ensure that November is not some sort of a a, a bad election. Assuming electing these weak Republicans, most of them including the new nominees in most states, is the solution. But let me just, you know, unpack this before we get into, you know, Tuesday night's election results in Ohio and and elsewhere. And that is and, and I'm just telling you, this just really I, I know I sound like a broken record with this theme, but for those of you who haven't heard my tennis analogy before, I I think it's important to go back to this before we really delve into more, you know, more issues specifically, and and the election results. So let's just tee it up with with a tennis analogy for our tennis fans in the audience. I always found tennis kind of a, a really intriguing sport. There's really nothing quite like it. You know, most sports, the big ones, basketball, baseball, football, are more or less team sports where you don't have the scrutiny focused on just one individual. Obviously, in football, the quarterback has an outsized share of, of influence and focus, and out, you know his ability to uh, change the outcome of a game is more than any other player. But you don't have the scrutiny of the stadium, so to speak, focused just on you. And then you have some individual sports where it's kind of one-on-one stuff, but it's just not... It's not as intense. There's nothing quite like tennis where each player is almost like his own franchise. It's like your own team where you're running all over the court, especially you know men's tennis that it's best of five sets. You could go on five hours sometimes, um, you know, especially when they have those long tiebreakers. You got to win by two. It goes on forever. I mean this stuff, when, when you face 10 break points at a time, match points, it's very intense. Why am I saying this? Because the audience makes a big difference. You know, this happens everywhere, but especially at, at the big, uh, big championships at at um, the Grand Slam events, particularly uh, the French Open, Wimbledon, where whenever you have a local player, you know, the country's favorite son, and there's someone playing against that guy. The audience gives that person hell. 
So you can imagine it's not just you know you always have home field advantage type of deal and you know crowd makes a difference baseball football but you're not just one man you're playing with a team here you're you're diving all over the field it's all on you every single time if you're playing against a British player at Wimbledon every good hit the the Wimbledon uh, the the English guy makes will be cheered every time you miss a ball miss a shot or overshoot a, a shot. They're going to cheer. People jeer at you. Um, you can't deny that it makes a difference. It could really influence the outcome. It's, it's, it's pretty obnoxious. But it is what it is. If you're a player stuck in that circumstance, you could say the audience is full of a bunch of bores and they're rude and they're you know giving an unfair advantage to the other side. But it is what it is. What are you going to do? What are you going to do about it? You could... Get rattled as some players have in the past. Shake your racket at them, threaten, go up to the stands and threaten to beat them up, um, yell at them, get yourself unnerved, or you could put on tunnel vision and focus like a laser beam on making your shots. You want to silence them? You make your shots, and you know I've seen it, it happens often that where. You know the audience gets silenced pretty quickly if if the non hometown player is winning. Now I'm not suggesting to extrapolate the analogy to reality here that somehow we're gonna ever silence and vanquish the media by having a proper agenda with a great messaging behind it. But I'm saying that's the best we can do. If our entire apparatus is focused on the audience, the audience doesn't vote. I mean, individual members of the media, I guess, technically vote too. But you know what I'm saying? They're not going to influence the vote in terms of voting. Do they have an influence? Of course they do. I mean, I would argue without the media, the um, Democrats could never be this radical and successful. But I mean, that's kind of a fixed variable. There's not much you can do about that. Especially while you're promoting left-wing policies that the media ironically supports while bashing the media. Why don't you actually relentlessly focus on 20 things you want to do and do them and message them and hit the other side with it and at least make the media have their meltdown over you? Abolish ICE. I would much rather have policies in place that force the media and the left to start attacking ICE and the Border Patrol and have the landscape of the elections on that territory rather than Mueller, Alex Jones, I hate the media, as it ends to itself. So now let's work backwards. I, I was working backwards. So Tuesday night, what happened Tuesday night? You had a district, Ohio 12, in the center part of the state, growing out of uh, su suburbs and rural areas around um Franklin County which which uh is where you have Columbus the big city of Columbus so you have this district that was left that was open from Pat Patterberry resigned big rhino like many of the Ohio Republicans most of them are in the mold of John Kasich not in the mold of Jim Jordan so anyway this district was um an R plus 14 district Okay, it's not a marginal district. This is an R plus 14 district. Um, it's been reliably Republican for many, many years. It has Delaware County 
the big suburban area that has reliably been giving a lot of Republican votes for statewide elections to Republican candidates, you know, dating back before, you know, Taft's time in the in the 40s and 50s. So it's an R plus 14 district. R plus 14 means it's 14 deviations, 14 notches more Republican than the national vote was. Um, so in other words, the national vote was what? Hillary won by two points, three points, um, popular vote-wise, nationally. So this district was carried by Trump by about 11 and a half points. Now, what happened? So as of this broadcast, the Republican, Troy Balderson, officially is declaring victory. He likely will be the winner. But it's so close, and now with provisional ballots actually narrowing even more, but it was less than 1% victory. It was 0.9, and it's even narrowing now over this guy O'Connor. Um, we'll see what happens, but let's let's assume he wins. So you took a district that Trump won by 11 points, and you won it by less than one point. Now, we're having this entire debate. You know, the NRCC is putting out that, which is controlled by fellow Ohioan um, Steve Stivers, who is an MS-13 Republican rhino pro-Obamacare jerk. Um, and that's who recruited this guy, who Balderson himself is another stupid rhino. Um, but the NRCC is out with an ad. There's no such thing as moral victories, like mocking the Democrats for like, you know, oh, moral victory. Well, we still won. But the stupidity of this is you you could put your head in the sand all you want, but the reality is just a couple months ago they did win in Pennsylvania 18 in western Pennsylvania, which was an even Trumpier district with even more rural and white non-college educated voters. It was an R plus 21 district, and indeed the Democrat actually won. So this is a problem – Going broadly, let me let me read to you from just uh, go through all the the special elections we've had. So yes, Republicans ultimately won all the other ones, <laughs> but you can't ignore the following facts: Kansas four. Okay, that was and that was already um only a few months after. The last election, Kansas 4, that was Mike Pompeo's district, um, Wichita area. He was – well, back then he was nominated for CIA director. Now he's obviously secretary of state. So he vacated the seat, created a vacancy. That was an R plus 29 district. What was the vote margin? Six points. The Republican, another just – do nothing, you know. Establishment Republican who won there, by the way, worse than much worse than Pompeo, um, and and that's another thing, you know. We're and and we're going to discuss this in our 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 analysis today as well. It's not just that we're getting crushed by Democrats; we're getting crushed in the primaries too. The rhinos are winning, and some of that I would argue is connected. So one took a R plus twenty nine, and he won by just six points. Then you had Montana at large because Ryan Zinke was 
uh, vacating the seat to become Secretary of Interior. R plus 21. That also was just won by six points. Okay, you had the Georgia 6 election, which was only R, R plus 9. That was one of the suburbs that were bleeding. We're already kind of doing worse even before this year. And I'm going to get to that in a minute. That went to – so, you know, there we won by f- 4. Okay, so that wasn't that much. And they put everything behind it and they thought – so that that was probably the, the best of them. But then you had, you had a South Carolina race. You know, so it was um, – What's his name? Uh, OMB director Mick Mulvaney. He uh, R plus nineteen district in in South Carolina five. The Republican won by just three points. You had Arizona eight, where um, you know you had a resignation because of sexual impropriety, whatever. One of these things from Trent Franks. R plus twenty five. The Republican won by just five points. Okay. So this is a very big problem. You can't ignore that. The question is, what happens if you have more – this is R plus 14 and we won by one. What if you take every district that's R plus 12, R plus 10, R plus 8 and onwards? Obviously, if you extrapolate last night's results and certainly the Pennsylvania 18 results to other equivalent districts, you're going to get – a Democrat pickup of like 80 seats. Now, I don't think they're going to win 80 seats, but they only need to win 25 to win back the House. See, a Democrat wave election, is, is there going to be a blue wave or not a blue wave? It's kind of, you know, it's semantics. To me, I define a wave by winning enough to win back the House and substantially winning flipping governorships and state legislatures. Republicans will probably hold the Senate, although I don't believe they're going to win as many seats as they say they will despite the favorable map, but they likely won't lose it because because of the way the landscape is. Um, but to me, it's you know losing governorships, losing um, state legislatures where you have – and by the way, Republicans lost dozens of state legislator seats, almost every special election they're losing. You know That's a big deal because now you're going to have so many more state governments that could undermine Trump, and believe me, whereas – even when the states are on the right, the courts don't allow them to fight back against Obama. Certainly, they will allow them to fight back against Trump and just you know do what California does in a lot of issues like, like immigration, sanctuary cities. You're going to have a lot more sanctuary cities. But let's get into the specifics here of what this means. So, so off the bat, you know, dude, you have a problem. Yes. It's still some time till the election. Yes, it's the summer. Yes, it's you you can make a smart case for saying that the Democrat the um bifurcation between the intensity of both sides is most accentuated in special elections and Democrats are at their zenith of electoral um viability in in the climate and environment of special elections, and maybe it won't be quite as pronounced in November. Yeah, so they won't lose 80 seats. Okay. But you still have a major problem here, and here's why. If you look at what's going on, there's a clear theme emerging from all these races, and that is a, a triple disaster. 
where you have Democrat-based turnout. Let, let, let's just divide up for purposes of our analysis, and I understand this is very simplistic. It's a little bit more complex than that. But let's talk about urban, suburban, and rural. And suburban, obviously, is the most complex. Urban you know, is, is kind of very monolithic, all, almost no exceptions, um, all Democrat. Rural, except for certain parts of the country, like rural Vermont, some rural areas in the upper Midwest, a couple, you know, it's a couple of funny areas. It's almost all Republican. Subur- suburbs are where elections are won. That's the battleground. But, you know, it's very diverse. You have, could have suburbs that are very, very liberal. You could have suburbs that are as conservative as rural areas. And, you know, you could have swingy suburbs and rapidly changing suburbs. Um you know, just to begin with, a suburb is less defined because it's in the middle. You know, it's a rural area. You know, it's very easy to point and say, well, that's that's all farmland. That's that's rural. Uh, you know, downtown urban area is very easy to define as well. But, you know, basically what's happening is in the urban areas, but not just urban, meaning the Democrat base, wherever they are, wherever Democrats are, whether they're in suburbs or even the small minority that are in rural areas, they're all energized and they're all turning out. And keep in mind that all adds up. Then you have a number of suburbs that we're bleeding. We're bleeding a lot of suburban, college-educated white individuals. So, you know, in addition to getting shellacked with the monolithic, you know, ethnic vote, minorities, blacks, immigrants, you can't afford as Republicans to lose college-educated whites because you can't win an election alone with non-college educated whites. So we're bleeding a lot of those in certain t- suburbs. And then in the rural areas, yeah, they're all going Republican, but the turnout is down. And and what I'm seeing is there t- there's two types of rural Republican base. There's the traditional Republican base that has long voted Republican. And then there's really more like Reagan Democrats, blue collar whites that, um, not the ones that have long been voting Republican or have been voting Republican since Reagan, but ones that maybe voted Republican or their parents or grandparents voted Republican for Reagan, but then voted for Clinton. And then a lot of them maybe just didn't vote recently. They're disenchanted people. You know, Selena Zito from the Pittsburgh Tribune Herald has a really amazing book on the Trump voter, defining what that Trump, who that is. And it's not just the traditional conservative base. It's he clearly added a lot of voters. That this you know notion of the missing white voter. So in order to understand what we're losing and the problem, and then answer the question: Is Trump helping or hurting? And the dynamics of what's going on in these special elections, what we need in the general election, what we're lacking. Let's go over the 2016 elections. So basically the Trump landscape is this. The Trump landscape is Trump – there's areas that are ready in 2016, even in the year of victory for Republicans, for Trump. He bled certain voters um, where he distinctly – even though he you know, won 200 more counties than Romney, but – overperformed in almost all of them um he won what is it you know 300 and uh what is it 306 um 304 electoral votes to romney's 206 um 
still, there were some areas in nominal terms that Romney did better. Now, some of this is that there was already a realignment taking place in American history where some of the remaining parts of the FDR coalition of non-college educated whites in the South and the Midwest that were voting for Democrats were already realigning with Republicans before Trump. And Republicans were bleeding certain suburbs that traditionally for many decades voted um, on the other side, voted for Republicans you know, Northern Virginia, um, Montgomery County, you know, uh, Pennsylvania, the uh, Philadelphia suburbs. There are certain, not you know, not again, not all suburbs are created equal, and each one set has its own story. There are certain suburbs we were already bleeding, um, where you see, you know, every election we're doing worse in. In comes Trump, and Trump exacerbates both of those, but on net for the better. So Trump bled in certain suburbs worse than Romney did. You know, an example, classic example is that suburban Atlanta district, you know, Tom Price's seat where Karen Handel um, ran in, in Georgia 6, where despite doing better across the board, there were areas there in Arizona and Texas, you know, statewide, not just in a district or a county, statewide, Trump did worse in Texas than Romney did. So Trump bled some voters because of his persona, because of the way he's perceived, the branding. Um, you know, a lot of these people, a lot of these college-educated types, they uh, they were turned off. Now, that wasn't a problem in the end because Trump brought in so many of these disenchanted, missing, white, non-college-educated voters in – and, and one county is around Scranton, around Erie, Pennsylvania, around Youngstown, Ohio, places that we haven't won since Reagan. And he downright won those counties. And then in, in addition, all of the traditional Republican rural counties that already were voting Republican by margins of like 70 percent, he managed to squeeze out even more votes that we thought couldn't, you know, couldn't exist. It was, it was amazing. I mean, to watch what he did in Pennsylvania. I mean, I couldn't believe it. I didn't. I didn't think it was possible to squeeze out more votes, and he did. From every one of those counties, you know, a hundred counties or so, you say, well, they don't have many people in them, but he squeezed out so many votes from them. It was amazing. Um, and then in Ohio, I mean, he won Ohio. You think, all right, Ohio is so hard to win. We've been losing it. Even if we win, we'll win it by one or two points. He won Ohio by eight and a half points. So on net, it was much better. So. If you're keeping your base jazzed, if you're keeping those that aren't maybe traditional Republicans or even traditional conservatives, but their culture should go along with what we're doing, especially relative to the insanity of the socialist, illegal alien, transgender, Muslim Brotherhood, Democrat Party, which certainly shouldn't resonate with these types. If we continue to do that, and as long as we don't gratuitously bleed more suburbs, we should be good to go. But that's not what's happening. My thesis is that we're suffering the worst of both worlds, is that we're suffering the fact that the party is defined by Trump in terms of bleeding the suburban votes. 
But then rather than the entire party being like Trump, because Trump himself is not on the ballot, and you have these pathetic, Weasley, Kasich, Ryan McCarthy, Stivers Republicans running with no agenda and no message. So having Trump as president and establishing Republicans in Congress, particularly in a midterm year when it's them and not Trump on the ballot, my thesis is that it's getting us the worst of both worlds where it energizes the left beyond belief because of the polarization of Trump. It bleeds some of the suburbs and even exacerbates the existing bleeding because of Trump, even though he's not on the ballot. But believe me, he is enough on the ballot for them. But he is not enough on the ballot, and the agenda is not prominent enough to juice up the conservative base, stop the hemorrhaging in the suburbs by converting them over on a safety and security agenda. And then what I call, again, these missing Trump voters, which is kind of its own. Some of them are in suburban areas. Some of them are in rural areas. It just, again, not all rural counties are, are created equal in that respect. Some are more blue collar than others. Some are more unionized than others. Um, you know, and that's the thing. There's just, there's just a very big difference um, between, you know, central Pennsylvania versus, you know, far southwestern Pennsylvania. Um, Again, I mean, to a lot of people, oh, they're just rural counties. But what what they don't realize is that there's rural counties that have been with Republicans forever. There's rural counties that have realigned since the Bush carry map, and they're still kind of realigning. And Trump really accelerated that. And then again, there's downright ruralish counties that are. Um, you know, like Joe Biden type of voters that, you know, they voted Democrat forever. And they still did, even with the polarized maps since the, since the Bush elections. So that's my assessment of what's going on here. How do I know that? You take a look at the breakdown of this District 12 here. Very interesting. So credit where credit is due, Steve Kornacki of an NBC political reporter, he had a good map um, that broke down the seven or so counties. Some are only partially in the district. Some are fully in the district um, that, that comprise this district. And, and basically, you know, this is a perfect example of how you have urban, suburban, and rural. And, you know, again, some rural are more, you know, traditionally Republicans. Some have more Trumpy type of Ohio voters. And you take a look at this map. It's just it's just amazing. What what he did was not just compare Trump's margin to Balderson, the GOP candidates margin two years later, started off by comparing Romney's margin. Because you could see the areas where Romney did better than Trump and where Romney did worse than Trump. Because like I said, there were areas that Trump himself was starting to bleed, even as he was broadly on net doing even better. So 
you know, basically, you have Franklin County. That's where Columbus is. So, you know, but you also have a lot of non-urban areas too, even in Franklin County. So, you know, Obama won that by just three points. Okay? Just three points. Because, again, it's not it's the way it's gerrymandered is it's part of Columbus. It's not, you know, the whole, it's, uh, it's not the whole thing because, you know, they didn't want, they wanted to squeeze out as many Republican districts as possible. So you have a lot of Democrats, but it's not, it doesn't have to exclusively be that. So these are suburbs, so to speak, but they're suburbs right around an urban, a liberal urban area. So they're going to be more liberal. So even though Romney lost it by just three, Trump lost it. By 18 points, right? He lost a lot of those voters. He lost by 18 points. Pretty amazing if you consider how statewide Trump did 11 points better than Romney, right? Because Romney lost it by a few and Trump won it by eight and a half. So it's pretty phenomenal that, you know, despite that, Romney actually did much, much better. Um, what is it? 13 points better in Franklin County. So Went from Republicans lost by three, lost by 18. In this election, O'Connor, the Democrat, beat the Republican by 31 points. So again, there's your jazzed Democrat urban base beyond belief mixed with bleeding more suburbs. Then you get to the more traditional Republican suburbs. You have Delaware County, the you know, a pretty populated county of suburbs, a nice county, but you know, it's not rural. Well, it has rural parts, but um you know, it has a lot of suburban areas, so it has, you know, m- many more votes cast than rural counties, and you're really going to need to run up the margins here if you're going to win statewide. It's been the breadbasket of Republican votes statewide. Um, for, for um, you know, for ma- for many many years, Mitt Romney again, even while losing statewide by a few points, won Delaware County sixty one thirty eight by twenty three points. Trump only won it by sixteen points. So again, it's not just okay, you know, just those areas. It's clear that, you know, it's hard to tell because Delaware is kind of, you have rural and suburban. So clearly what probably happened was Trump ran up the margins even more in the rural area that relative to Romney, but he did bleed some of the even traditional Republican suburbs, not just traditional Democrat suburbs, but traditional Republican suburbs relative to Romney. You know what happened there? So again, Romney plus 23, Trump plus 16, Balderson. Plus eight. See what's happening here. All right. Now it'll be like, okay, what about all the rural counties? There's whole or parts of roughly, what is it? Um, four or five counties that are, again, in whole or part in the district. That are either traditional Republican um, rural counties or um, 
or, or or a mix of traditional Republican rural voters with more traditional Union Democrat, you know, voters that moved to Trump or again some maybe were disenchanted, never didn't vote for Obama, but didn't vote for the Republican and then voted for Trump. So you'd be like, all right, at least in those areas, okay, so look, you know, the Democrats are just going nuts with their turnout. Um, Republicans, you know, they're, they're also bleeding suburbs. But at least, like, the core Trump base we're keeping, right? No. So, yeah, I mean, he won it, but, you know, this is not enough to overpower the, the losses in those suburbs and, and um, urban areas. So basically, in every one of those counties except for one, Balderson underperformed Trump. Now, that one county, Muskegon County, uh, it's it just it's it's anomalous just simply because um, Balderson is a state was in the state house and state senate for a decade from Zanesville. Uh, from that area, so you know he he did a few points even better than Trump, and that, that that's that's his 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 area. Um, you know, if he would have been a new candidate without a state legislative district, he would have done like the other four rural counties. He would have lost. But anyway, you take a look at the map, and it's amazing. It's just simply amazing. You look at Morrow County. Okay, it's a big that 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 that's that's your you know one of your best conservative areas, Murrow County. Romney won by what is this twenty four points. Trump won it by fifty fifty point margin, seventy two to twenty two. Okay, Balderson won it by forty one. Okay, so he slid back nine points there. Marion County, Romney won it by 26. Trump won it by 68. And Balderson won it by 37. Okay, slid back. Richland County, okay, this is a little less conservative. Romney won it by 12, but Trump expanded that to... 19. So it looks like here Balderson did hold a 19 point victory. Um, but then you go to you go to Liking County, Romney won by 14, Trump won by 29, and Balderson won by 24 or 20, 23. I don't want to just bore you with numbers here, but the point is. You're seeing the picture. He did well. He did well. And roughly as well as Romney, maybe even a little better than Romney in some places. But we're not holding all the Trump voters. See, again, mixed in these rural areas, you know, not everyone's created equal. Some are more traditional conservative rural voters. Some are, like I'm telling you, they're the ones that Trump won over. And that's the difference between winning a district by 30 points, a county by 30 points versus winning it by 50 points. It makes a freaking difference when you're getting clobbered in the urban areas and you're bleeding certain traditional suburbs. You need to run up those margins. You can't afford to lose that. 
So my theory is, and I said this on Steve's show, is that when it comes to the traditional conservative base, I believe that by the time November and all the scare tactics, oh my gosh, do you want to lose the judges and Pelosi for better or for worse, the binary idolatry kicks in and they always turn out. But the missing Trump voters, I believe, are not turning out because we're not giving them a reason to turn out. We're not giving them a reason to turn out. And coupled with the accelerated bleeding of the suburbs and the urban areas and the jazz Democrat turnout in the urban areas or really, again, wherever they are, because, again, that's going to cut into your margins everywhere. I mean there's Democrats living even in the most conservative counties, and you know, when you're talking about district-wide – you know, we don't have county elections. I mean there are county elections, but for our purposes, district or statewide, I mean it all adds up. So do I think it's likely that they're going to net 80 seats? No, because I think the enthusiasm gap will close a little bit, but you're in a hell of a lot of trouble here. Anyone who tells you otherwise – is completely BSing you. Now, where does Trump come in? Does Trump help or hurt? So, like I told you, it's already baked into the cake, the hurting part. Now, a lot of that's not Trump's fault. Like I said, to begin with, the polarization factor was headed in this realignment of the map to a certain extent anyway. Um, to begin with, Every midterm election from here on out, you know, for those of you who remember the late 90s, that's what Michael Barone used to call a stable political environment. It was very stable. It was boring, the late 90s. Picture like the 98 midterm elections. Turnout was low. I mean it was – we're never going to see that again. With the advent of the internet and social media pouring gasoline on the growing polarization, the party that's out of power is going to be militarized against – the one with the sitting president, certainly when they have Congress. Okay, that, that is a given, and that's what worked to our advantage in 2010 and 2014, and that's what's going to work to the Democrats' advantage in 2018, and this is what's going to happen here on out. That is a permanent shift because of technology in my view. So no matter what, you are going to be – if you're holding that ball and you have possession of the ball – you are going to be facing a truculent and determined blitz to sack you and force a fumble and recover the ball. You have two options. You could sit there and play with yourself, throw away the ball while you're a touchdown or two behind, or you can make, relentlessly make big plays with a no-huddle offense you know, just wear them down one issue after another. Use their wedge issues against them. They want to have their wedge issues. You wedge them back. If there's one thing you could ever take away from me in horse race analysis, it's this. There's no such thing as lukewarm hell in politics. Once you've incurred all the liabilities of a wedge issue, the only choice you have is to own it and then squeeze out all the benefits of it. So we've actualized all of the liabilities of Trump and his persona real and, and perceived, rightly or wrongly, justified or unjustified, the voters rejecting him. But imagine if we had a message on health care, a message on safety and security, a message on MS-13, Hamas, 
crime. And I'm going to get to that hopefully today. Trump is now sucked in by Republicans to promoting Willie Horton legislation and jailbreak. Not only shielding the Democrats from blame, but actually owning the issue for them. Imagine if we ran Willie Horton-style ads on this every day. That is exactly what suburban voters want to hear. That's a wedge issue that simultaneously juices up the rural base, the Trump blue-collar non-college-educated whites, and suburban college-educated whites. The only people who might not like it are the ones, are the Democrat base that will never, ever vote for you, and they're as militarized against you as they can be, and you're not going to turn them on more than they already are. Let me tell you this. Suburban voters might be a little bit brainwashed with their college education with the media, but most suburban families in this country, in most parts of the country, you know, think exceptions of Vermont or Eugene, Oregon, whatever. You know, I mean, most most of these places, a place like Delaware County, Ohio, okay? They don't subscribe to the ideology of embracing Hamas and MS-13 and banning straws. I'm sorry. And if we had an agenda that exposed the left, not on the media bias, but on the issues, and had an agenda to redress this, and every day had legislation forcing this, and Trump gave speeches on this, and brought Congress back into session, and and has a, a budget fight over so many of our issues and our messaging here. Don't tell me you wouldn't win back suburbs, and certainly, certainly re-energize these people. Now, I think Trump, there's no question he saved this rhino's hide by going in there because it's just a couple thousand votes. I think, you know, he's not on the ballot, but coming in, he clearly probably brought back a few thousand votes in each of the rural counties, and that was enough for him to win it here. But again, that's an R plus 14 district. They don't need to win every R plus 14 district or any R plus 14 district to get anywhere near flipping the house and causing a lot of mayhem in state elections. So we do ourselves no favors by ignoring this. Trump, the the die is cast. Trump is the party leader. But you may as well have people running not on his persona, kind of, I know I would be, you know, I'd say it's wise as possible to, kind of have your own persona, but at least on his broad campaign agenda of putting America first. Give people reason to turn out. What is your message? You can't score points by shaking your racket at the audience. You got to make your shots. You're not going to win them back with your hot takes on Mueller. It's just not going to happen. I'm sorry. You're not going to convince anyone on that, even if you're right. That issue, if, if you're talking about that, it's not going to be a winning issue for us. But yet, Republicans have this genius idea of promoting jailbreak. From, from what I hear from my sources, and it's, it's pretty evident even in, in open source material, Trump is not only endorsing this first step back-ended amnesty, that back-ended jailbreak that I um, spoke about last week. We went through uh, all the details of this. But now the sentencing front-end jailbreak bill. I have an article out today um, on Senator John Kennedy, who might be, you know, potentially a new conservative in in the Senate, who wrote a letter warning him about the what he learned in Louisiana when they passed this. But 
what who in the world would think in an election that you're bleeding suburban voters like again like certain things uh, suburban voters unfortunately maybe get brainwashed into some of the i don't know homosexual agenda some of this stuff but i'll tell you what they're not brainwashed in i i could tell you in the democrat baltimore suburbs i could tell you being tough on crime is a winning issue certainly in delaware county ohio which is much much more conservative than Baltimore County, Maryland. But these geniuses thought of this idea. And Trump's getting hook, line, and sinker. Trump is meeting today with the liberal Democrat governor of Louisiana, Edward Bell, because if you remember, they wound up winning that seat because of the whole uh, Vitter's whole affair, that whole issue. And we keep losing seats because of that. Now we have Chris Collins' corruption. You know, the, if we're going to fall, shouldn't we at least fall on our own issues? And you know what? If we promote our own issues, maybe we won't fall. So damn frustrating. So we have two paths. We could ignore, ignore the fact that we're down two touchdowns and hold the ball and get sacked. Or we could quickly make plays and not get sacked, put them on defense, dispirit their base. See, if you would pass solid immigration enforcement, not only do you jazz up your base, you actually dispirit the Democrat base. We've seen this before because then the liberal Hispanics won't turn out because they actually blame the Democrats for not being strong enough. And you divide them, and then you make the Democrats go to the left and focus on abolishing ICE, and they turn off suburban voters. That's what happens when you're the one defining the, the messaging and landscape, but they're defining it. So yes, yeah, suburban voters certainly are not where Bernie Sanders and Cortez, uh, uh, what her name, Alexandria Cortez is. They're not into MS-13 and banning straws, but by default, they're just inundated with negativity on Trump without any counter agenda. They're they're gonna stay home. Some of them are gonna vote for the Democrat because a lot of them are faceless, kind of you know hiding their radicalism. This is what's gonna happen. The best way to expose the radicalism is by having your agenda. You need your policy, and you need your purpose. You need your focus. You need your game plan. There, there's a lot more to this I didn't even get to. In Washington State, Kathy McMorris Rogers, the number four Republican in the House, loser, rhino. Um, this is far east Washington, Spokane, but all the – Rural areas around it, the most that is the most conservative district in Washington. Trump won it by 13 points. She won by just one point. It's a jungle primary where you have Democrats and Republicans on the same primary ballot, so it's a little complicated, but it's really bad. Other districts as well. And in Kansas, Kansas too, this is uh, Lynn Jenkins' old uh, – she's retiring. Um, Lynn Jenkins is the one who beat um, you know, my uh, – former boss, I worked for Jim Ryan. He held that seat. He lost it to Nancy Boyda in 2006. That old um, district where, that old election where Rahm Emanuel recruited people that at least on the surface were pro-gun, pro-life, pro-marriage, anti-legal immigration. Those are the type of Democrats that they needed to win that district back then. Now, in the open seat, this Stephen Watkins a guy who I'm told by 
activist on the ground there is literally a Democrat. He approached Democrats initially to run as a Democrat. Because they don't have runoffs there, it was a crowded field, he won with 26% of the vote. The Republican nomination, that's who we have. So we're losing those two. Even when we're not losing to Democrats, although he basically is a Democrat. Because nobody is focusing the president on the right personnel for elections. You see the power of the president, certainly in primaries. But I would argue even in general election, we already suffered the liability, so you can only benefit from having him juice up you know, his base. But we don't have a movement focusing on these races. I can't do this alone. And then, and then just one more note on the elections. It's like, you know, like another, another pseudo-conservative thumb-sucking media hot take talking point is, see, uh, you know, uh, Alexandra Cortez, all her candidates lost. Well, first of all, she endorsed five. Three of them lost, but two of them won. But do you understand it was just personality or whatever that she endorsed, chose her endorsements? The ones who wound up winning in those other three races were just as radical. We have the first Muslim woman. She's is all my my colleague, national security correspondent Jordan Shack. That was all sorts of information on her um, ties to Muslim Brotherhood organizations. Um, but in Kansas, to challenge um, in one district uh, was this, this District Four. It, it's this lesbian MMA fighter woman, whatever, extremely radical, as radical as they come, and this is who they're recruiting to run. In these districts, we could crush them if we had a competing narrative. But we don't. We just have hot takes. I have a lot more I really wanted to get to, but I, I have to warn you, it is a code red on jailbreak. I want you guys to call Senator John Kennedy's office in Louisiana and thank his – tell his staff, thank them. Say, even if you're from out of state, I just want to thank you because I don't have in my state a representative or senator standing – for Reagan's crime agenda, standing against the Soros Coke jailbreak agenda, that it's all built on a lie, and the lies get exposed every day. That's code red. They're, 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 they're working on that. They're passing that. Trump's totally on board. The same day that he, that he tweets endorsements about who's tougher weak on crime, he's endorsing an initiative that's more radical than anything Obama did on crime. So we have that. We have – I'm going to have an article coming out on this insane Ninth Circuit opinion granting a cause of action for Mexicans to sue our Border Patrol when they shoot their citizens, most always in self-defense. But even if it's not, that's for our system to take care of. There, the, the judge was concerned about Mexican sovereignty. I don't have time to get into that, but I'll have an article on that later. Um. What else do we have in our lightning round here? Um, I just want to flag for you West Virginia impeachment. I love it. This is a great story. West Virginia legislature. See, it makes state legislatures great again. This is what's so important. They're impeaching every one of their sitting Supreme Court justices. Now, my understanding is it's more on corruption, bribery, political favors, abuse of you know public funds for their offices and travel, whatever. But it's still important. And it underscores, even though it's not on like decisions they made, but it still underscores what I'm saying and what we discussed on our last episode with Professor um, Fitzpatrick that 
if you strip the federal courts of jurisdiction over most of these political issues, and at least if we're going to have politics decided in the courts, at least do it in the state courts where A, they're mainly elected, and B, the legislature has more control over them than Congress has over the federal courts because they'll never impeach these judges. It's just the mystique of a federal judge. They, they just have so much power. It's unbelievable. Devolve it, devolve it, devolve it, devolve it to the states. Um, we have the visa overstay report out from DHS, 700,000 visa overstays. Um, we have, by the way, 1.6 million foreign students last year, which in itself is a whole problem. It's ridiculous. It's like triple just in the last few years. Um, many of them from Middle Eastern countries. Thousands of the visa overstays were from there. We don't know where they are. Imagine if we had an agenda on that. It's from the 9-11 Commission. Totally put the Democrats on, on defense. We have the border crossing numbers where the numbers are still are down overall for the second month in a row, down to 31,000 from their peak at 50,000, so that's good. But it's hard to tell what's happening because on the one hand, in July, because of the summer heat, traditionally that's baked into the baseline that the numbers do go down. Um, and if you peek into the numbers, it's clear that while UACs went down, the unaccompanied crossings, the family units going across stayed about the same. So what that tells me is that what the courts are doing, what our body politic just ripping their head, oh, we can't divide families. They're like, oh, this is great. See, this proves what I told you a couple of weeks ago that they're not separate demographics. They're the same, they're often the same people. They want to come here. It has nothing to do with asylum. They want to come here to work, to fleece this country. They want to come for welfare. They want to come here because they want to come here. So they're going to find any way to do it. They understand that we're more lenient on kids, so they'll send kids. All things equal, they would rather all come. So now that we're saying that if you come with your kid, not only does the kid here to stay, but catch and release because we can't separate you, that's why I believe the amount that would have been UACs are now coming as family units. That's what the number – that's my hypothesis. I can't prove it, but you might say, well, the numbers are down, but I would argue that because of – relative to a typical July, you could maybe call it a wash. So it's really not down. It's just transferring to family units. Not that family units are up, but they're about the same. Because again, I would argue you have a certain baseline that's not coming because of the weather. The ones that are are now more are now emboldened to downright come with their kids because they don't care about separate. They'll separate them if they need to, but all things equal, hey, I want to get in too. So there's that. Um, the ACLU is suing for um, asylum. Remember, I told you the best thing Sessions did was actually to demand that USCIS agents, the asylum adjudicators, properly determine in the credible fear interview that asylum is real, like, you know, persecution, not fleeing poverty and violence. So I wonder, I wondered why it took this long, but da da da, the ACLU is suing class action lawsuit in um, the D.C. district, which is completely messed up. So they'll win on that. And we're doing nothing about it. Now, you might ask, well, don't you have to have a case or controversy? Like, was it, you know, show me someone who's denied and let's adjudicate that case. How do you abstract hit at a guidance from an administration? How is that ripe for a lawsuit? Well, you know, they don't need to follow the rules of standing because, frankly, there should never, there is no standing to demand a discretionary policy of asylum to begin with. 
certainly from a foreign national. There's a lot, lot of things I really wanted to get, get to today. And that's the point. We have such a compelling narrative. Why am I the only one focusing on so much of this stuff? You show me a party and a movement with this messaging and agenda in a consistent, smart way, then come back to me about election results. I would love to see suburban votes. I, I would argue that my platform for this movement and party is a platform that could harmonize suburban and Trump voters, traditional Trump voters. But we don't have such a party. The best we can do is Trump alone. But what, what I'm telling you is we're getting the worst of both worlds. We're getting Trump's liability without his benefit. We're getting, you know, the establishment's liability without maybe their, you know, ability to rope in certain suburbs. Finally, there's one other thing. We did purpose. We did policy. I want to talk about personnel. And we talked about personnel a little bit, not electing the right freaking people. We're actually moving the House and Senate Republicans even to the left, even from where they are this cycle, which is pretty bad. But I want to talk about the policy in the executive branch. So, okay, the, all we're left with is the executive branch because the legislative branch is not going to do anything. So it's the things we can do executively. And to be fair, like people like Azar, I think, have done a relatively good job. Um, Vima, um, the CMS director, she's done a – she has a pretty good philosophy on healthcare. They're doing a lot of good things administratively. They're limited in what they can do. But for the most part, we have major personnel problems where we, we just can't have nice things. Where we either have Obama appointees still running it, we don't have, or we there is no Trump appointee, or we have these never Trumper type of establishment Republicans that were chosen that then have the ability to block the resume of like a Cruz guy because he opposed Trump. I want to just read to you, and I know we're running very late, but I promised this, so I I, I don't want to punt this till next week like we will some other issues. I want to read to you just a synopsis of an email from someone who is very in the know of their complaints confirming a lot of what I've seen. And, and by the way, just first, I, I can't underscore enough the importance of good personnel in getting your message out. You know, I have this all the time, whether it's a member of Congress, a senator, or people from the executive branch. We'll often approach them when they're doing something we like and we're promoting as kind of conservative quasi media, you know, what you would call a friendly an ally and like, hey, you know, you know, I mean, you you know me, I I would be your best ally if I agree with you on something. And we're gonna dog the issue relentlessly. And they often they, they won't respond, they won't get back to us. Sometimes it's because the staff they're really jerky. Um, they really don't share the values. Sometimes they're just incompetent. It's a very big problem, um, and I'm seeing that across a lot of different agencies. It's a very, very disturbing pattern, very disturbing pattern. Um, and you know, I, I, I don't know. I, de Democrats don't have this problem. They just don't have this problem. And believe me, they're working with, um, you know. There, there are people at the New York Times, Washington Post, AP, wherever else, um, and then certainly the official left-wing blogs and stuff like that to get their stuff out. What's amazing is many times in this administration, not many times, all the time, they'll get back to um, the left-wing media, not our people. 
You know, like, why is it that Acosta always gets questions? I mean, I know sometimes he butts in and grabs it for himself at the at the press hearing. But, you know, our cars, our White House correspondent for CRTV, John Miller, very talented young man. Um, I know many of you love his videos. Uh, you know, why doesn't he get a seat? But anyway, this is all about comms. But, you know, what's worse is even policy. So I'm just going to go through, you know, this is just basic stuff for my friend. Um, just a, syn- a, a synopsis here. DOJ. Right? It's hollowed out. Hollowed out. Um, basically, it's the White House that tells Senator McConnell its priorities. It's the White House that has to nominate political appointees. You know, th- th- there's a lot of criticism of McConnell. He didn't keep them in the Senate long enough, you know, over the August recess. But, you know, and, and look, I'm not a fan of him, but a, a lot of cases – the White House, they're not prioritizing and, and directing the nominees. So right now, there's no associate attorney general. Right? There's, there's a lot said about Jeff Sessions. There's a lot said about the number two, who's Rod Rosenstein. Shouldn't we at least have our best guy who's the number three there, the associate AG? There's no nominee for that position. There's no assistant attorney general for a lot of the um, division heads, the civil division. There's no assistant AG for environment. Um, <clears throat> there is a nominee for that, but it's it's been languishing. I don't know what the story is. There's no assistant AG for the civil rights division, which is all the voting stuff. Where is that? There's no assistant AG yet. I mean, again, th- this is, you know, some of it maybe you could blame on on McConnell for not making them work weekends and really pushing the envelope with the August recess the way he promised but didn't really do. But, you know, where are they? So there's no assistant AG for the tax division. So the nominee is Eileen O'Connor. I actually know her. I haven't spoken to her for, you know, for a while. But she's the wife of Judge Raymond Randolph, of the senior judge in the U.S. Court of Appeals for District of Columbia. Um, he is—he's a really good guy. She's—she's—she's she's she's good. Um, she, I believe, did she have that position under Bush? She either had that exact position under Bush or um, or the position under that. But I am hearing that she is being held up by someone in the White House Counsel Office, okay? There's no assistant attorney general for the Office of Justice Programs. Justice Programs. Those are all these, like, agitation groups that have, you know, these nonprofits that are promoting jailbreak and God knows what else, transgenderism, who knows? There's no director for the Violence Against Women Office, which is another militarized zone for the left-wing agenda. Um, you know, I, I could go on and on. Now, now there's no White House li- liaison to do DOJ. There was a problem with the guy, Andrew Smith, misconduct or something. So he's out. Um, so that's, you know, you, so you don't have that coordination because, you know, um, 
and, and this is a big one, and, and, and we're going to have, maybe next week, we're going to have Derek Maltz, our b- buddy who ran DEA's special ops division for a number of years on the show. We're, we're going to do a whole write-up on this K2 Spice synthetic marijuana laced with rat poison um, by Yemeni-owned bodegas that are immigrants here and then sending the money back to Yemen and funding terrorism. Uh, that whole story he spoke about a little bit. I'm going to have a write-up on it, and um, I want to have him on the show. But anyway, one of the points he's always yelped about is there's no DEA director. I mean, if, if, if we're having the biggest drug crisis ever, you want a guy who's going to be honed in on busting up the cartels and finding the nexus of terrorism to organize crime and drugs. DEA is often the first people at the scene, and we're going we're gonna to really make that point in the coming weeks. So there's an acting – they have the acting head, um, um, Dylan. This is a guy who worked for Comey. And he was moved to DEA from the White, House, White House's counsel's office. Um, Dylan lied to the president when he said he couldn't fire Comey, according to the New York Times. He was one of the guys who said he couldn't fire him. So you understand his constitutional views. Um, you know, I could speak to this openly because I had Attorney General Sessions on my show, and I asked him point blank. I said, "Why is there no DEA nominee?" And he said, "I've given given some good names to the White House." And then he kind of like you know diplomatically left it at that. But this fits in with the pattern I'm painting that you know. There's really three components to, to nominees. There's the you know the head of that department making the suggestions and his staff making the suggestions. There's the people in the White House coordinating it for the White House, and then there's McConnell stewarding it in the Senate. The biggest problem we're seeing is really the White House. Okay, then there is um, the Treasury Department, right? Everyone knows about the problems with the IRS. So we had the recent Treasury Inspector General report that shows the IRS rehired more than 200 fired workers in a little over a year. Um, why is that not being dealt with? How did that happen? The IRS, you know, which which is just broken to its core, re rehired. From what I've been told, one, a fired worker with several misdemeanor theft convictions and one count of felony possession of forgery of a forgery device. Eleven employees previously disciplined for unauthorized access to taxpayer accounts. An employee who was absent without leave for 270 hours, 33 workdays. An employee fired for physically threatening coworkers. An employee fired for lying about previous criminal convictions. 17 employees previously caught falsifying official documents. Um. Two IRS employees fired for poor performance were rehired within six months. Who is doing this? And meanwhile, we can't get good guys in the administration. Um, then, there's, then there's NSC, National Security Council. Even under Bolton, the CIA is, is – again, this is from my friend. The CIA is claiming that the intel director has to be one of its people. You can't bring in anyone. So who are they signing? A Brennan person. So CIA is making up this rule that you need to have someone from the CIA attached to that, you know, running the NSC's intel department. 
when the whole point is to kind of have their own independent thing. Um, so we got a Brennan person there. Um, there's, there's a lot more I could go into, but I'm going to link to in show notes, the labor department, our buddy, Paul Miringoff, great, great guy at Powerline. Um, we'll link to in show notes documented how Secretary of Labor Alex Acosta and I warned about him, open borders guy, liberal guy. He avoids making any policy and personnel decisions that will alienate the leftists. So, um, you know, it's just full of bad guys. You got the ARB there, which is the Administrative Review Board under DOL, right, Department of Labor, and that, you know, that, that they oversee everything. Administrative review is every. I mean, it's it's immigration, like visa, work, labor issues, Sarbanes Oxley, Title Seven litigation of the civil rights, labor, employment laws, environmental stuff. Um, obviously, certainly fair the Fair Labor Standards Act, things like that. Um, so the ARB consisted of five very liberal people put in there by Tom Perez when he was the labor secretary under Obama. Um, you know, previous presidents, you would come in there and you would just remove them, right? I mean, you, you have control over that as the secretary of labor. Instead, none of them were removed, you know, according to Myron Goff. I mean, th- this is what we're dealing with. This is what we're dealing with. Oh, and by the way, back to the the um, the NFC. Um, where is this? Let me just find this here. You know, again, because th- that really took me by surprise. Because I thought that at least, um, you know, under under Bolton, you you got to believe it's going to be it's it's going to be solid. It's got to be solid under Bolton, no? Well, I don't know. Not so much. So we already said there's a problem with the guy who runs the Intel division. Okay? What I'm hearing is the deputy director is Vaughn Bishop. Deputy is number two guy. Vaughn Bishop, who is the vice chair of NIC under Obama and praised by Ben Rhodes, Deputy Ned Price. I, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. There's some good people in the administration. But, you know, when Obama was president, it wasn't like some, you know, there were, were some liberal people. Everyone, every nook of, any, of every cranny, of every office, of every agency, of every department was someone who shared Obama's values. And they staffed them up. Here, they're either not staffed, they have Obama people, or they have rhinos. Stop with the soft bigotry of low expectations. Have a purpose, a game plan, a strategy, and policies. I can't – we need a movement focused on this. We have a dime a dozen Fox News pretty faces to talk about this stuff. Now, look, I can't do anything on these issues. I don't have influence. But the people at Fox News' nighttime primetime – you know, nightly primetime lineup and, and Fox and Friends in the morning – and Drudge and Rush and Hannity, they have that influence. 
I try my best to have diplomatic relations with the people I can. You know, I, I personally just sent an email to Tucker Carlson on on jailbreak, you know, because he did mention it. And so I said, like, this is a this is a code red. It's happening. Trump's completely bought into it. We'll see what happens. But this is why we lose. We're at the zenith of Republican power, and we can't even get so many of the policies and personnel we want. We can't even get better candidates running when we have this luxury of Trump's power of endorsement. He's gotten a little better, especially with governor endorsements. It, it, it likely will turn out to make the difference in the Kobach election in Kansas for governor, assuming he wins by like 100, 200 votes. But um, not not in Congress. There's no star among them. The Senate people, forget it. They're zeros. Believe me, they're zeros. These are some people who wouldn't come on my show once they found out who I was. That should tell you everything you need to know. <sighs> this is where we are. It's not all bad news. Again, the good news is not everyone in this country wants an MS-13 Hamas transgendered illegal alien Muslim Brotherhood agenda and banning straws. In fact, most people don't. But we don't have an undistracted, focused movement exposing the left on those things, promulgating our agenda on every single branch of government we control, using the leverage points of legislation, budgets, primary elections to augment our agenda and direct the president to the right policies rather than having the bad guys direct him to the wrong policies. The best I can do is call the balls and strikes on this and do what I can privately to you know, reach out to people. But I just wanted to paint a picture of a movement that can be, that should be. And I want you to ask yourselves, what would the election results look like if we had such a movement? Anyway, thanks for listening. I can't wait to hit the sack after a tiring week and you know a little bit extended uh, family time uh, with my family. And I'm going to sleep this weekend after a nice productive week here at Conservative Review on my purple mattress. Go to purple.com, promo code Daniel, and get your scientifically made, firm but soft, secure but breathable mattress. It is your best mattress. I'm telling you, you're not sleeping properly until you get a purple mattress. So go to purplemattress.com, free shipping. Um, if, if you're like, look, I don't want to spend the money now, try it. 100-day, 100-night free guarantee, free shipping, free returns, backed by a 10-year warranty if you decide to choose it. And with promo code Daniel, you will get a free pillow, which by the way, in my view, um, sometimes is even more important than the mattress. And I'm going to get myself a purple seat cover for my uh, old chair here, which is giving me problems here. But anyway, thanks for listening. God bless you all. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. 